seat. Thanks. <clears throat> That's a great call to worship. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Nathan. This is Emmaus Church Community. So glad you're here. Had our first fire last night. Kind of, kind of cozying down. Yeah, first fire. It's a good thing. <clears throat> That's rain outside. In case you haven't seen it for a couple of years, that's what that is. It's actually, well, I'll explain it later. Why don't you raise your hand if you need a Bible? Love to hand you a Bible. We're going to be in Daniel, the um, the book of Daniel. And um, Nick, would you would you look up Daniel in that Bible? Um, it's so it's so hard to find. Uh, I want to give the page number, and I forgot to grab it. So uh, we'll do that in a minute. Um, also, if you're on the aisle and there's a basket under your chair, can you hand that down? And if 600, that's easy. Page 600, Book of Daniel, chapter 1. Um, if you can hand a basket down. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, if you'd like to fill out a card, you're welcome to do that. This is just an opportunity to hand off your contact information so we can welcome you a little bit better. Um, every Wednesday, we send out an email that just highlights two or three things that are happening in our church community this week. So that's the primary use that we will um, that we'll appreciate for that if you want to hand that off. All right, great. Well, welcome. So glad that you're here today. We're starting a new series that I'm very excited about. I've been working on it for a while. It's called Buck the Trend. And here's what where it really um, here's where it's the, the kind of the genesis of it. Here's where this comes from. Lots of people, lots of the time, um, are talking, especially recently, I think, about the radical and rapid change of our culture, how things are changing so radically, how things are changing so quickly. If you want to sell a book, if you want to sell a magazine, if you want to make people, encourage people to watch your TV show, it seems that it's almost as simple as just saying, everything's changing faster than it's ever changed before, watch this show or buy this movie. It seems like this is sort of a general theme. It doesn't matter if you're talking about technology. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the um, environment. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the family, the economy. Everything's, everything supposedly is experiencing unprecedented change. It's, it's changing faster and more radically than it ever has before. And if you read, if you read anything about the Christian church in America, which I do a lot, I'm not sure how, how much of that um, kind of, I think a lot of it lately actually has kind of hit um, kind of popular news outlets, but the narrative on the state of the American Christian church in the last couple years has been real clear. It also, according to almost everything you read, is undergoing a time of unprecedented change, and um, this change is resulting in vast numbers of people leaving the faith and this massive drop in church attendance. At least that's the narrative that is pre presented. In short, according even to several magazine covers that I've seen in the last couple of months, Christianity is dying in America. Right? That's kind of the narrative. The church is going down fast. The rise of the nuns, have you heard that phrase? The nuns, not the N-U-N, the N-O-N-E-S, those who claim no religious affiliation, is because the church in America is dying. That's, that's the narrative. The shift and in traditional cultural views on several hot-button issues in the last couple years in our culture is a sign, according to the narrative, that Christianity is dying, that the church is in retreat. So I want to say two things just to start off in regard to this in, in, certain, in terms of kind of a basic premise. Two things. One, it's not true. And two, this is nothing new. Uh, Christianity isn't dying. This is this is Ed Stetzer, who is the president of LifeWay Research, and, and he says this. He says, Christianity isn't dying, and no research says that it is. The statistics about Christians in America 
are simply starting to show a clearer picture of what American Christianity is becoming. What's it becoming, Ed? He says, less nominal, in other words, less sort of like, just sort of culturally I'm Christian, less nominal, more defined, and more outside of the mainstream of American culture. He goes on and says, for example, the cultural cost of calling yourself Christian is starting to outweigh the cultural benefit. So those who don't identify as Christian according to their convictions, like they might identify as Christian according to their tradition, but those who don't identify as Christian according to their convictions are starting to identify as nuns. That comes from when you have to check a box next to a religion and you check the box none of the above. So they started to identify as nuns because it's more culturally savvy. Few of us got to hear Ed Stetzer present his research earlier in this year, and he presented really compelling um, evidence to what we're seeing in our culture, that it is in fact a shift of the middle 50% of our culture away from identifying by default as Christian and which they've really basically done for most of the last century. Ed Stetzer basically argues that the percentage of Americans who are committed followers of Jesus, as demonstrated by their lifestyles, they would say, Jesus is a big part of my life. Jesus shapes the way I live my life, specifically the way I spend my time and the way I spend my money. That that number in our culture, that percentage of, of our culture, has been almost since the beginning of our founding of our country, 25%. It has remained consistent at about 25% of our culture. And he also says that for about the same amount of time, the um, amount of people in our culture and Amer who, Americans who are not religious at all has also remained consistent at about 25%. Now, for a long time, basically as long as you or I can remember, that middle 50%, he calls it the squishy middle, the middle 50% would lean toward yeah, you can see the different colors, would lean toward the basic traditional convictions of Christianity. I remember when I was a kid going through my dad's Vietnam uh, awards and medals and things like that, and I found his dog tags. And on his dog tags, it said Ronald Vance Oates, his birthday, and then in capital letters, it said Christian. He wasn't Christian, Right? But he must have checked Christian on the box because he wasn't Jewish and he wasn't Catholic. Right? So he checks Christian. This is kind of what Stetzer is saying. We, we, as a culture, any red-blooded American who's going to eat apple pie and watch baseball, if, like all other things being equal, in our last century kind of leaned toward identifying themselves as Christian. Stetzer's example that he gave is that not long ago it was considered politically advantageous if you were running for a political office in our country to kind of not be extreme, but kind of gently associate yourself with Christianity. Get a couple pictures of you walking into a nice historic church with a big leather Bible. That was considered politically advantageous. Not anymore. Like in the last 10 years, probably not politically advantageous. Why not? Because the middle 50 is no longer leaning towards Christian conviction. The middle 50 has shifted. And it's leaning towards uh, the convictions of a completely secular culture. So, is America, is Christianity in America dying? No, it's, it's actually not. It's actually really strong. Are we seeing the collapse of the church? No, we're seeing the collapse of nominalism. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing the collapse of kind of a, a cultural 
Uh, I can't check any other box. I'll check Christian. And I'll kind of lean. If you call me for a survey on my phone, I'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a, basically that's what I believe. The 75% of Americans who would check the Christian box on a survey maybe 20 years ago aren't going to check that box on the next su uh, census that, that happens in our country because the middle 50% is leaning the other way. What does this mean? Well, it means a lot of really exciting things. One of them is that in the future, calling yourself Christian is going to make a significant difference. It's going to have cultural ramifications, more so than it probably did 25 or 30 years ago. The idea that Christianity in America is dying is not true. Neither is the idea that um, there's sort of cultural pressure on Christianity or on the community of God. That's nothing new, right? What I mean is that cultural change has been, uh, has has pressured the people of God for a long time. It's happened before. It's happened a lot more severely than it's happening now, and it's happened in other places. God's people, in other words, have navigated times of cultural pressure and cultural changes before. And in times of cultural change, when the heat has been turned up on the community of God, one story seems to get dusted off over and over and over again. One story from the Bible seems to be pulled off the shelf and revisited when things start to get so hot that people start to wonder, how are we supposed to respond to what appears to be just massive cultural change? And it's the story of Daniel. It's on page 600, if you grab the Bible. It's one of the minor prophets, so it's at the end of the Old Testament, if you want to try to find it in your, in your Bible. I hope that you'll turn there with me now. The story of Daniel is written to the Jewish people at a time of intense cultural change, a time when everything, it seemed like, suddenly was very different than it had been for a long, long time. And the things that were changing were not just cultural changes. They were cultural changes that negatively impacted the way the Jews could worship God. They were cultural changes that kept the, the, um, the Jewish people from worshiping in full freedom. In fact, they were cultural changes that, that include intense persecution, even death. Changes which created such a bleak view of the future, the near future, that most people would respond by saying, oh, just shine it. It's, it's, it's going in a basket. It's done. And their only hope would be like the ultimate end of time when God would bring uh, restoration. But against that, against that backdrop, the story of Daniel features a couple of young men who take a whole different approach. And that's what I hope will be um, inspiring to us this morning. These young men respond to devastating changes in their world very differently. They offer an alternative to just throwing up your hands and saying, it's, I'm giving up. Um, and I think it's important for us to examine and consider their response to big cultural changes. Here's what they do. They buck the trend. That's what they do. They buck the trend of the dominant secular culture. They also, and please hear this, I'm only going to talk about this for three weeks, but this is important. They also buck the trend of the dominant response within their own religious community. They do something more creative. They do something different, and I think it's very important that we see that. Here's the story. Um, it takes place in the 6th century before Christ. Uh, I'll put the scripture on the screen. This is the first verse of the book called Daniel in the Old Testament. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the Jewish king, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, that's the Jewish capital, and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. 
These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, none of us have ever experienced this level of cultural change. At least I don't think so. Maybe some of you have immigrated from countries where you've seen like a major political takeover, where uh, like devastation of the culture is rendered by the, by the incoming king. But perhaps we haven't, but most of us haven't experienced that. But perhaps at another level, maybe you can identify on this level. Maybe you've had an experience that's made you feel like your culture's kind of being besieged. Maybe you've had an experience where you feel like the things that you value as sacred are being disrespected, or maybe even carried off and used for another purpose that they were never designed to be used for in the first place. Okay, this is a story about that. It's on a whole different level uh, than we, what we can experience. Uh, my son, my six-year-old, is, um, it's hard to watch movies as a family in this stage of our life because we're in our 40s, my kids are teenagers, and then I got a six-year-old. Why can't I watch that movie? Well, it's PG-13. We, we don't want you to watch that movie. Do they have PG-6, he says? <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Do they have PG-6? This is like a story that is so more severe than most of what any of us can imagine, right? And I don't want to even begin to say, wow, the cultural pressure we're experiencing is just like Daniel experienced. It's not. It's lightweight compared to that. But hopefully we can, res- we can see how he responded. We can learn from it. Here's verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some from the Israelites, from the royal family and the nobility. Any of your, any of your um, translations of the Bible have a different word than court officials? Anybody reading their Bibles? Royal family? Royal family? Chief of the royal family, is that what it says? Hmm. The king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court, chief of his court officials. Anyone else? I'm surprised. The Hebrew word that's translated royal family, court officials, is eunuch. Okay? Uh, maybe it's a little too hard for us to swallow that reality in this culture or something. It, but it, they weren't all the chief officials weren't eunuchs. But this was the word that was, is actually in, in the original language. Essentially what that means is... This man has no ability to rival the king on any level. He is completely, he's just a yes man. He's just there there to do the king's bidding. He is put then in charge of this assignment to bring into the king's service some from the Israelites from royal family and nobility. Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He, that is Ashpenaz, was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them, get this, the king assigned these Jewish boys who were coming into his service a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among them were uh, those chosen, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, so there's basically, there's, there's three big characters in this story. There's the king, king's got total control. There's uh, the chief eunuch, he's the yes man. He is there just to do the king's bidding. And then there's these, there's these super promising young Jewish um, youth, men of like almost unlimited potential. So the king, or the oppressor, power holder, he initiates this like almost entire tot- tot- totalitarian kind of change. It's a comprehensive plan to devastate Israel. He destroys the temple of Israel. He takes the most sacred things in the temple of Israel. He puts them in his own temple, the temple of his god, Marduk. 
And then he even takes the most promising asset of the culture, the young, promising youth, and he does not kill them. No. He tries to basically redefine them, recondition them, indoctrinate them, right? He's going to feed them the best food. He's going to groom them. He's going to re-educate them according to his values, according to his literature, to serve his purposes. The king doesn't want to just capture them. The king wants to recondition their minds, wants to indoctrinate them according to a system that completely rejects everything about their Jewish background and their Hebrew faith. Because uh, anything about who they are, their true identity, or their love for God. Now, the next sentence in Daniel reveals just how total, just how complete this re-identification plan is. This is what it says, verse 7. The chief official gave them new names, right? To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. This is really important to understand. These four young men are taken from their country to a new country, from their language to a different language, from their temple to a different religious system altogether. Everything is changed, even their names. And here's what you need to see. This is really important in terms of translating this to our culture. All the stuff that I just talked about is outside of their control. It's stuff that's happening to them. They can't do anything about this. It's happening to them. Later in the series, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about the challenges that come from inside of us, the things that we do that drag ourselves down. But this is not a story about that. This is a story about stuff outside of our control that uh, happens to us that threatens to redefine us, who we are, what we believe, and might just totally undo us in the end. This is a story about followers of God who in one minute, their whole lives get totally changed. They're going through their lives, and now everything about who they're going to become is no longer up to them. None of it. In fact, ancient Jewish writers teach, according to a, pas a passage of Isaiah's prophecy and according to a passage in Jeremiah's prophecy, that part of being brought into the king's service meant for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they too would become eunuchs. We're talking about unprecedented change. We're talking about your whole life gets taken away from you and redefined, and your very identity is, is change, right? Unprecedented, overwhelming opposition from the outside. Now, here's where this story becomes instructive to us, I think. And not only to us, but to thousands of followers of God over generations and generations uh, who, have, who have experienced cultural pressure from the outside. It's, it's, it's the inspiring effect of Daniel's response. It's Daniel's response that I think can teach us a new and better way. Here, here's the climactic scene in the movie, okay? Here's the big reveal, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. What choices does Daniel have at this point in his life? Not many. How much influence, what kind of power does Daniel have in his life right now? Almost zero. But he models a faithful response to a very challenging set of cultural realities. This does not sound very dramatic, right? This would not make a good scene in a movie. No, thank you. I mean, what is that? It's almost so, so simple and quiet and subdued that you're like, so what's the big deal there? But here, he, what he does is he, he refuses to participate in something that everyone expects him to participate in, right? He refuses because it is the one way. It might be the only way he has left to remember and act upon his true self, who he really is, who he really loves and serves, to remain faithful to God. If I were there in this story, I would say something like, Daniel, it's been a rough year for you, man. 
Everything's been taken away from you. Your whole life has been taken from you. You know what? The only silver lining in your whole experience is that really good food that you're given every day and that good wine. You know, you're out of control. You have nothing to say about this. Everything's out of your hands. Why don't you just go ahead and accept the, the little bit of good that's a part of your story here? But Daniel would say to me, it's not all out of my hands. That's what he would say to me. It's not all out of my hands. I will not surrender to this current. I'm not going to surrender everything I am and everything I have just because so much of my world seems to be out of my control. And he bucks the trend. That's what he does. He rebels against the machine, right? He creates an alternative way forward. It's subtle and quiet, but it's powerful, and it's been the, it's been the fuel of people in similar situations for 2,000 years. He bucks the trend. Lots of people today are talking about the radical and rapid change in our culture. This is not new. This has happened before, and followers of God have navigated much more difficult situations than this for a long time. So here's my message this morning, and I want to invite you to consider it in light of the Word of God. Here's my message. We should question cultural trends. We should question them. We should evaluate the expectations that are being placed upon us. We should uh, not just fall into line with what everybody else seems to feel is fine and okay and appropriate. And, well, gosh, you should just sort of be expected to do this. We should consider instead rebelling against these trends and creating a better alternative. Right? That's the message. This was interesting. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, we just finished a couple weeks ago this eight-week family formation plan called OnRamp. So Rick Ashey wrote a parents' class and taught a kids' class. And we brought everyone together, and I taught a sermon on the same topic. And then we sent parents and families home with, a, with an exercise and a discussion to do at home on, uh, during a dinner time or something like that. We hoped that this would be helpful. I'm not sure that it was. I'm, I think we may have shot at a target that wa maybe wasn't really where we're at because one of the things that we learned as we're thinking we're going to provide some historic and theological background to why we do what we do in church, kind of th thick, deep stuff, is that it's like that the discussion material wasn't good. Most of our families with young children aren't having dinner as a family at all. It's like, whoa, we just totally missed. Now, if the cultural trend is away from worship as a family, and if the cultural trend is away from dinner as a family, maybe we ought to buck that trend, right? That's the bread and butter of faith formation. Regular Sunday worship, regular dinners with family. That's where it's happened since Deuteronomy chapter 6. If that's the trend... I'm simply saying, let's consider bucking that trend. Is that hard? Oh, it's so hard. It gets harder for us every year. High school is a new level of hard. You get a baby, that's a whole new level of hard. I don't know, you probably, every, every level of life probably is a new kind of hard. Harder every year. But is it worth reevaluating as a matter of ultimate importance? I think so. I think so. My desire this morning is absolutely not to tell you what to do. I don't like that kind of preaching. I don't think it's ultimately helpful. I think it misses the point. I think it oversimplifies complex and nuanced situations, which are your lives, right? But I do want to urge you to ask some good questions. So let me end this morning by just suggesting three questions that I hope you will ask as a result of this series. Number one question, what trends are you buying into? 
What are the trends? What are the cultural movements that you're buying into? This calls for some really good self-reflection. This calls for a conversation between those uh, of you who share life together, who will speak honestly to each other about what's really going on. This might call for you to have a meal with somebody older than you who is a different per- in a different place in life, who has a different perspective, and can speak into your life maybe with some more clarity. There are lots of ways that we're shaped that we didn't choose. There are lots of things in our life that are out of our control. We might not even realize we're being pulled into certain cultural trends, right? Because we're swimming in this water. We, it's hard to speak about it objectively. What trends are you buying into? In other words, in what ways are you being pulled into the major movements or the major patterns or the major values of our culture? It's a good question to consider. Here's a second question I encourage you to ask. Why are you buying? Right? Why are you allowing certain values, certain behaviors to attach themselves to you and to your family? Is there something that feels attractive about them? Is there something that you're longing for that, you're, that you feel like that might uh, um, bring to fruition in your life? It's important to just name that. There's no judgment here. It's just, why? Why is that trend so attractive to me? Or maybe it's like, gosh, I didn't even know. I don't even know why I'm buying into that. I'm just sort of getting pulled along in this bigger current that I seem to be just sort of part of. Pushing back against it just feels so unrealistic. Like, who does that? Nobody does that. Everybody's doing this. So it's just the way life is. I love this picture. I love this picture. Found this picture. I love it. Let me tell you why. Because this bull understands something with crystal clarity. What does he understand? That cowboy does not belong on his back. I love that, right? God did not make me, says the bull, to have you, cowboy, on my back. So therefore, I'm bucking that trend. I am getting you removed from the position which you were never created to have in my life. It doesn't matter I'm at a rodeo. It doesn't matter all the other bulls have cowboys on their back digging their spurs into their loins. It doesn't matter I'm all fenced in. I've lost all my freedom. Cowboys don't belong on my back. I'm bucking them off. Watch me, right? (laughs) You just try your eight seconds. I'm going to blow that out, right? Some things just aren't supposed to be on your back. You know what you do when things aren't supposed to be on your back? You buck them off. You, you, You get rid of them. You shed that junk, right? You rebel against it, you create a better alternative. My hope in asking why are you buying into that is not to be judgmental, though the risk of this series is that some of you are going to feel like I'm being judgmental. My hope, you know what my hope is? That you'll be free. That's my hope. That you'll live free from these weighty social pressures that we just embrace without even knowing about it. We just take on these expectations. We carry them You were never made to carry around this stuff on your back. Some of the expectations you guys live with and I live with, we were never made to carry this stuff around. We're not meant to live with this kind of stuff. Why are we buying into them? Why are you letting these things ride around on your back? Why are you letting certain expectations, certain cultural values define your identity? Why are you letting them rename you like Nebuchadnezzar, right? I was in a conversation with some high school girls last week. I coach a soccer team. And, uh, we were talking about Instagram posts and the level of criticism that these young women were leveling on themselves in this conversation was disturbing. My ears are too big. My nose isn't right. My lips aren't right. I have bad angle. My hair is terrible. I'm so fat. I'm so skinny. One of the girls admitted to taking dozens of selfies in order to get just the perfect shot 
Then she sends it through a whole variety of filters. Then she posts it online. And then this is what I thought, this is what caught my attention. Because I'd heard all that stuff before, but I'd never heard this. If it doesn't get enough likes, she pulls it offline. I want to say, honey, your value is not based on how many people hit a stupid little heart on their cell phone, right? Buck that trend. Reject that definition of who you are. Boy, who told you you got to carry that pressure around on your back? Who convinced you that that thing belongs? Get rid of that cowboy, right? Buck him off. Be free from that. I can't define you. That's that was the saddest part of my week, was that conversation. Why are you carrying around cultural pressures like that? Don't buy into those kinds. Of, here's a third question. How can you buck the trend? What trends are you buying into? Why are you buying? And then how can you buck the trend? I've become friends with a young man who is asking serious questions. We've met for a couple years now. He's asking serious questions about how his faith and his culture should interact. And meetings with him are incredibly inspiring to me. And this phrase that I've used already several times in this sermon comes from him. I learned it from him. Rebel and create. I love that. Rebel and create. How do I buck the trend? Where do I even start? Well, you've you got to rebel and create. I think it's a great phrase. I think it's faithful to the teachings of Jesus. How do you buck the trend? It involves rebellion. In other words, you say no to something. You get rid of something. That's how you buck the trend, right? You say, I will not eat the king's meat and the king's wine. I, I'm just not going to do it. And more than that, it involves creation, imagination, restoration, not just judging a trend to be bad. Boy, has the church got a master's degree in that. We've done really good at saying that's bad. That doesn't take almost any insight. It's a tired observation. Let's just stop. You know what would be better? If we, instead of just doing that, say that's bad, that's not who I am, therefore I'm going to create a better alternative. Watch me demonstrate a better way of doing life. So it's not just the rebellion, but it's the rebellion and then the creation, the better alternative. I think that's powerful. I think it's a good two-step process to addressing anything in your life that you feel like, man, I really don't want that on me. That's really not the truth of who I am. And so we're heading into a season where um, some of our strongest cultural values and cultural trends and cultural traditions are going to be on high display. And I simply want to say, let's move into this season with our eyes wide open and our hearts wide open, gracefully questioning, wisely evaluating. And when we sense God calling us to step out of the current, let's step out of the current. Let's step all the way out of the current and let's just let that wash right on by, right? When that weight gets put on our back, and we're like, gosh, that, let's buck that trend. Let's, let's reject that as, a, as something that has to be put on me from the outside. Let's rebel against the crowd and let's create a better alternative for us and for our families. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for examples, those who have gone before us in situations that are so far beyond and more severe and more threatening than what we experience. And yet I'm concerned that the subtlety and the friendliness and the suburban element of our pressures woo us in, unaware to just living in a way that really is not true to who we are. And as a result, just being buried in pressures and obligations that really are not ours to carry. All kinds of unhealth. And so I pray for freedom for those things. And I pray that we would have a new sense, not this sort of, um, I don't know, renegade kind of thing, but definitely like a clear sense, this is who I am, therefore I'm going to rebel against that, and I'm going to create something better. 
And I pray that this could be something that we could engage in together in a way that's helpful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good. Would you stand up? We're going to take a moment to greet one another this morning. We do this every week. It's important that we embrace one another as part of our worship gathering, and so that's what this is about. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Let's take a moment to say good morning to one another. We'll come back together in a minute to continue to worship and respond to the word.